The deeper Christian life is no deeper than that of the clear teaching of God's Word. It is not a mystery withheld from anyone, but made known to all who will listen and obey. Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. May Christ lead you deeper into Himself today as together we explore God's Word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hugan. If you want God to make your life a spring of hope and peace and blessing even in dark times, if you want to be a spring to people and not a desert, you're going to have to find a way to keep the refreshing life of the Lord Jesus flowing fully into your life. God wants that for you. The enemy doesn't. He attempts to block up the flow of Christ's life coming to you. And one of the major ways that he does this is by robbing you of the great truths surrounding the Christian faith, by convincing you to discard them, or by encouraging you through thoughtless neglect to forget them. And so the enemy blocks up the flow from those truths of the water of Christ, flooding over you and from you to others. So let's reclaim the great doctrines of our faith. Abraham's well has been filled by the enemy. His son has wandered from the place where he was raised and the place of promise that God had made to Abraham. Isaac went off to seek his own fortune. He was successful for a while. His success got the best of him. Abimelech and the people that he was among, the Philistines, didn't want him among them, so they pressed him back. So he comes back to the land where he'd grown up and to the wells that his father had dug, and the enemy has filled that well. They've filled that well. He doesn't want him to have crops and vineyards and all those types of things. Isaac's enemy is just like our enemy. At salvation, the well is opened up to us, and God plans for us a life of abundance. What does the Lord Jesus say in John chapter 10, 10? I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. That's his desire for us. This life that can only be described in ways that are practically indescribable. A life that's like having God come into your heart and having a meal with you. A life that's like having your life opened up so that your very being becomes a river through which courses out the blessings of God on other people even as He's refreshing you. can't tell you exactly what that's like. You have to experience it for yourself. It goes beyond analogy. It goes beyond uh, the ability to lay down uh, a proper definition. But that's what God planted, this refreshing life for us. And our mistake is that having been saved completely by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and suffering and dying for our sins and simply by turning from ourselves and putting our faith in Him, that having turned from ourselves to Christ for our salvation, we turn back to ourselves to live the Christian life, thinking that somehow we can accomplish it in our own strength and that we can develop our own success story away from the ground in which salvation opened up for us, and it, it doesn't work. So when we turn our eyes away from the Lord Jesus and we turn ourselves away from an utter and profound dependence upon Him and submission and surrender to His will, the enemy rushes in behind us and he fills that well with all kinds of rubble. Now we know we need to get back to it. And we've had a generation, we've had a few generations that have been pleading and praying that God would send revival on the church. They know that everything is not quite what it ought to be. That there's more that God intended than that God wants for us. But sometimes it's difficult, it's laborious to remove the rubble from the well. So you say, Lord, I'm not what I need to be, not where I once was. I'm not growing at the rate I want to grow. I'm not feasting on the spring and the level and the full flow that I want and I know and I expect from your word. And 
been given to anticipate, God, help me get this rubble out. Well, there's some work to do then. We've talked about that. We've talked about the rubble that gets in the well. And first piece of rubble that gets in the well, I don't know how this works as an analogy because it gets in the well first, but you've got to take it out first as well. But the first thing that gets in the well is a lack of belief or faith in a sovereign, all-powerful God who acts and intervenes and is present, immediate in our lives. Now, we don't just necessarily stop believing that in our minds, but it ends up getting no further than our minds. God becomes an idea to us, an abstraction to us, and yet at the same time that we believe in Him and we say these things, He is remote from us in our daily lives, in our expectations, in our prayer life, in our private life, in our life before other individuals, on Monday through Saturday, whatever it is, oftentimes we live as though and we think as though and we calculate and we plan as though God were not there in the moment and not before us and us before Him. As a result, among other things, we live with a greater fear of men than we live of a fear of God. We don't ask God for great things. We just ask God for little things and our prayers are defensive and they're not strategic and bold and great. And Well, there are a number of different reasons that we gave and go back and listen to that message. You'll get all of it. I don't want to repeat it all. The second thing after that, though, when, when God is no longer sovereign and immediate in our lives and He becomes an abstraction in our mind, that we're not living before Him as a fearful reality. Well, that idea affects our approach to God's Word. When we come before this word, we're no longer before it as before God, counting on His presence to arbitrate its truth to us, but instead we insert our own subjective ideas and notions over this word. And so we start coming to this word, and what governs the word is not God's voice in the word, but our needs before the word. We begin to study this word and be influenced by whether it satisfies our desires or our wants and We say things like, what this really means to me is, and well, you know, what I get out of this is, and the first casualty when you have this kind of subjective approach to the Word of God is the doctrines of God get set aside. It's not that we stop believing in these wonderful doctrines of the faith that are taught through us consistently throughout the Word so that they become progressively revealed to us until they hit their full sense of expression in the person of Jesus Christ, but they're just not as important to us as having our needs met and satisfying the immediate concerns that we might have. And so what's more important to us are practical answers and finding something that's immediate to my circumstance or situation. Well, this approach is something that Paul actually warned the church would be taking place in the last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine." But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, subjective demands upon the text, they will heap up unto themselves, teachers, individuals who will give this to them. People won't want to hear the old truths of Scripture and the ancient truths of God's Word so much. Instead, they want something new, something relevant for their day and for their need. This new self-imposed, subjectivized study of God's Word will produce all kinds of discovered and rediscovered ethics. It will produce all kinds of moralisms. 
it will produce all kinds of strategies and plans. It will produce and manifest itself in social and psychological engineering. And it's not a new phenomenon. Something that the church has defaulted in over and over again when they've let go of. The great proclamations of God declaring His great profound doctrines or truths to us. And instead they make themselves sovereign to get what they want and what they think they need out of it. You'll remember that we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. That in the dark days before the great revival that happened in what was called the, the Great Awakening under John Wesley and under Whitfield, that the church at that time was filled with, we reported, filled with the nozzle tones of moralistic and ethical preaching. The fact is, the pulpit today still offers the same kind of preaching, although I think we probably don't do it with nasal tones. Well, you know, back in those days, they didn't accept that you were smart unless you had a certain kind of oratorical affectation that showed you that you were otherworldly in what you said, but it was just moralisms. Today, they don't think that you have anything good to offer unless... You say it with your hand in your pocket and you're real casual and you can actually put a little bit of crude edge to it and a little bit of reality and maybe you have a nice crew neck t-shirt on and do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter. The message, though, is oftentimes moralisms, ethics, encouragements, Bible tips for a better life, how to be a better person, how to make the most of yourself. Ultimately, though, there's no power in this. It's just... Dry rubble in the well. It's a trickle instead of the stream that God wants to open up to us. Listen to, I'll remind you of a quote of a pastor who wrote before the revival that took place in Wesley's day. This is what he said. We have preached morality so long that we have hardly any morality left. This moral preaching has made our people so very immoral that there is no length of wickedness which they are not afraid of running into. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of people who think that we're going to solve the needs of our country by developing a moral majority and getting into political campaigns. But that's not ultimately the solution. It's God reviving the church. It's God opening up the fountain. Here's what another pastor said at this time before this revival broke out. Christ's doctrines and precepts are so generally slighted and neglected that little Christianity is now found among the Christians themselves. Our day and age, the polls are demonstrating that profession Christians are living with no higher moral plane than non-professors. That professing pagans and agnostics and atheists are just as honest and truthful, just as addicted to inappropriate internet sites, just as often to get divorced as the person who's the professing evangelical. And so, generally, we live in such a way that our lives are, for the most part, indistinct from everyone else, other than the fact that we choose to listen to rock and roll music with a different lyrics to it. I'm not criticizing that, but if that's our distinction, it's a pretty weak distinction. And this after a time in which the church pulpit has been filled with self-help advice and ethical and moralistic teaching and radio programming where you can call in and get counsel for your finances and raising your kids and your relationship problems and every other psychological problem that you might think that you have. And, but what's been missing? Well, what's been on a decline in the church through my generation is a bold proclamation of the great doctrines of the faith 
springing to life in us by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. When that happens, God extracts the rubble from the well, and we start getting back to our truths. And that doesn't mean that we haven't believed these things, because I think most of us have believed them. I believe that we would cling to these things and say that they're true, but simply because they're written on the paper, simply because we know them, know about them, doesn't mean that we know them and exalt in them. And I would just say one other thing to you. The correction to this that we spoke about is to subjectivism is not a textualism where all of a sudden we become theological students and all of a sudden we become people who are refining our exegetical skills so that we can develop the science of biblical interpretation because in this place, instead of letting my emotions be the thing that's arbitrating God's truth to me, I think it's my intellect that's going to be the thing that arbitrates truth to me. On the way here, as I was driving here, I remembered that God does not bypass our reason. God says, come, let us reason together. But reason, my reason alone, before God's word is not sufficient. God must invade my mind and my heart and my thinking. He says, come, let us reason together. It cannot be my voice of understanding, my qualifications and skills, my theological acumen. God must speak. God's spirit must illuminate our hearts and inflame us with these truths or all of my theologizing all of my great exegetical skills all of my ability to provide just the proper hermeneutic which is the proper rules of interpretation over scripture all of that can lead me to a place where God is still just an abstraction to me you've been listening to the bread of life a ministry of the bread of life fellowship in Boise Idaho For a copy of this broadcast, just call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, may God bless you.